a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to AgReminders. As we've heard in the previous interviews in this series, the human domination of our environment has taken many forms, including the cropping of lands that were originally covered in natural vegetation. But what effect has the cropping of these lands had on the weather patterns of neighbouring lands? This, combined with the influences on our climate, has been the subject of a major study nicknamed the Bunny Fence Project in Western Australia. The rabbit-proof fence that divides the southwest cropping land areas of Western Australia from the native vegetation of the pastoral zone to the northeast provides a natural boundary that allows the study of the effects of cropping single crops on weather patterns, and it has turned some fascinating results. To explore if we put too many of our eggs in the carbon basket and ignored an overriding influence, our agriminder today is soil scientist Phil Mulvey. Now, Phil is one of Australia's most respected and valued environmental soil scientists. He's a part consultant, part contractor, part researcher and part entrepreneur, but he's always been a free thinker. After over 35 years as a practising soil scientist and entrepreneur, he remains passionate about landscape repair. He's the founder of Environmental Earth Sciences International and is also a past New South Wales State President of Soils Australia. Since 1984, Environmental Earth Science has operated as a consulting firm that is focused on repairing and nurturing the land and removing harmful waste in the most sustainable and environmentally friendly manner. Their clients have included federal, state, local government departments, mining companies, refining companies, manufacturers, chemical companies, farmers, as well as a whole lot of overseas clients. So welcome to AgriMinders, Phil. Thank you, Chris. What an introduction. Philip, we've been totally focused on carbon as being the solution to a perceived climate change that one assumes, and I guess humankind hopefully assumes, that we can do something about. Rather than adapting to climate change, we're actually trying to influence the definition of being fit under the survival of the fittest regime. But there are those who have predict that, in fact, in the next 20 years from now, all the agricultural areas will be largely non-productive. That's a pretty scary idea. We're losing land to salinity and we're losing all sorts of reasons, loss of forests and urbanisation. And now we're saying that the remaining land will be unproductive in the next 20 years and not sensibly to do with carbon. What's the story here? Look, um, this was a prediction from the mid to late 1980s, and it still remains highly valid. It's to deal with desertification, and it's to deal with a different type of carbon called organic matter. And the concern has been for a long time that um, the loss of organic matter and its impact on local climate with the loss of the small water cycle leads to loss of water, increased heat, increased desertification and collapse of most of the past civilizations, which have been put down to this sort of issue. Well, let's just talk about the small water cycle, as you call it. Most people would be familiar with the large water cycle where water evaporates off the sea, comes inshore, goes over a mountain or something which makes it go higher, 
gets cooler, drops the rain on the ground. That, that's a sort of the large water cycle. And and then comes in a river back to the sea. So, yeah, it, so it's a complete cycle. What yes. the small water cycle, describe to me what that is. The small water cycle is about local generated rain. So it is the light rain, the dew, the mist, and the, the um, summer thunderstorms. So it's generated by local evapotranspiration, so not from sea, not from big lakes, but from plants and from soil. And it goes up and then condenses and falls down within a couple of kilometres. So in, in the case of the large water cycle, the sea, of course, you know, is pretty much all of the heat that comes from the sun. It can be used in evaporating water. So, so that's it. But on the land, some of the water evaporates off with water, but some of it actually just radiates straight back up or gets absorbed. So what's the difference in the way the water is generated, if you like, for clouds over land as over the sea? Well, well, let's just go back to what you talked about was different types of heat and incoming radiation. I'd I'd just like to to take you to the, you might remember as a child, being fascinated with um, flames and hot plates. So if, if you turn on a stove and get the hot plate really hot. You can heat it and put, say, a fry pan on. The fry pan goes red with heat and it's just radiating heat. But if you put a, a saucepan on and fill it with water, the actual metal of a saucepan never gets hot, hotter than 100 degrees because it's boiling off water the whole time. So the boiling off the water is called latent heat. And the red heat that you see that builds up and it just gets hotter and hotter, that's called sensible heat. Now, on the land, you have a combination of the two, as you do on the sea. But the sea, you've got so much water that you're always volatilizing off water. So there's very little sensible heat. So the incoming radiation is converted to latent heat. So you get a lot of evaporation occurring from the sea. So if we're having more radiant heat, sensible heat as you call it, which is radiating off rather than going off as water vapour, does that radiant heat mean that the falling rain has trouble getting through? It kind of re-evaporates before it gets to the ground? Do you need bigger drops or do you need heavier rain? And what's the effect of that on the actual rainfall? Um, I'm glad you asked this excellent question because it's, you're absolutely correct. If you look at the areas that we all know and, and read in the Bible about the fact that the arid zone that we know of the, of the Middle East area actually had, you know, full tree cover back in the time of Christ. It doesn't now, but the climate hasn't greatly changed. But most people may not have known that in November, Kuwait had the worst floods they've ever had. And it was a huge amount of rain. It was three years of rain in two days. And that was because the raindrops were so large. So your explanation is exactly right. The raindrops evaporate as they fall. Then they as they get close to the ground, the radiating heat causes more evaporation, but then they have to cool the ground enough to infiltrate because the hot ground beneath keeps a pulse of air which can't get out because of the, of the, the enarmoured surface from the big raindrops, so you end up with major, major runoff occurring. There are other soil effects there that are a bit scientific I don't need to talk about, but effectively the raindrop size needed to get past the heat that is radiating back and then to cool the ground to infiltrate is now so large that only super large storms actually have impact in those areas. So this is the process called desertification. If you lose the trees, then you lose your organic matter. And as you lose your organic matter, you lose the glue that holds the soil together. 
The soil becomes aquaphobic because it has no organic matter glue in it and no aggregates, which means it repels water. And then on top of that, it needs big raindrops just to get to the surface. So what you end up with is a typical desert-like rainfall event. You have no light rainfall, and the only rainfall you'll get is huge, of which 95% of it runs off. So we're really talking two effects here that are crucial to the landscape on a local level, leaving the sea out of it. The first effect, is, you say, is the turbulence from having different heights of vegetation. And the second effect is the amount of heat that goes into generating water vapour and the amount that just radiates off and effectively reverses whatever water's coming down anyway. I guess what I don't understand is how growing crops on it, which are still plants... Why has that changed all that and why have we actually made the situation worse by growing our own plants rather than just leaving the native vegetation? Well, a couple of things. Um, We have made it worse because we imported a European template to Australia initially without understanding that we had lower organic matter to start with and lower rainfall. Then somewhere around the 60s, we got heavily invested in a strongly chemical um, cropping, um, more so cropping than grazing systems. And what that did was a focus on, because we had the chemistry, we could actually have constant cropping. And constant cropping meant that we harvested the organic matter from the soil. We also, up until um, no-till and controlled traffic took over to to quite a strong extent, um, we had circumstances in which we had long periods of fallow, So the amount of sensible heat really started to build up in the landscape. By the time we realised that um, excess tillage wasn't the way to go, we're at the point where we'd lost so much organic matter from our system anyway that it requires substantive repair to actually build the organic matter up. And we're still in a system where, though we may leave standing um, stalks after harvest, which provide some ground cover, we still have large areas of bare ground. And that allows over the summer a huge amount of heat to build up. So the problem we have with the agricultural system we have currently, and we're moving to war, uh, to restore by putting organic matter back, is that we are change the ratio of sensible heat and latent heat in our landscape so that we're about 80% uh, sensible heat and only about 20% latent heat, whereas before we're the other way round. And that has meant that we have a huge loss of rainfall occurring, which has been demonstrated beautifully over in Western Australia with the only paired climate study in the world. Everywhere else that looks at climate change looks at models and looks at very local scales to look at it or looks at experiments in the lab. The largest field experiment in the world occurs in West Australian wheat belt or the very edge of it. Is this a so-called bunny fence project? Yes, you're using the American name, aren't you? Americans called it that. So tell me what that proved. Look, this is the the rabbit-proof fence, which every Australian is aware of, Um, particularly from the film that helped make it famous. But um, I certainly studied it at school, and I'm sure when you went through, you would have studied it at school. It was a a big thing um, at the time to stop the uh, expansion of rabbits. It was obviously quite unsuccessful. Um, But there's three fences that extend roughly 1,300 kilometres between um, the edge of the wheat belt uh, on the eastern edge 
in Western Australia. It sort of cuts off that southwestern corner of Australia, doesn't it, from from the desert. So if you drew a line across the sort of the little tip on the southwestern side down near Albany and Esperance, that area, if you drew a line across there, that's where the fence runs, more or less across that tip, isn't it? Yeah, look, it, 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 rather than call it the desert, I'd probably call it the end of the arable zone um, because obviously there's a pastoral zone beyond it. But yes, it does cut it off. And for a vast amount of it, on one side, there is reasonably untouched native vegetation, and the other side, there is cropping land. Um, So you've got this clear difference with a very sharp boundary. And the really interesting thing about it is that it's been known and studied since about the mid-1990s that in the wheat zone of Western Australia... There's been a 20% reduction since the 1950s in rainfall to the 1990s and probably about another 10% since. So so up to the 1950s to now, there's been a 30% reduction in rainfall. But surprising enough, if you go area equivalent area for area, it doesn't occur on the other side of the fence. So this has been studied um, quite extensively, originally by Professor Lyons at Murdoch University, and then a major group of universities around the world have studied this because it is a fantastic paired study on the influence of landscape by man in landscape that's been basically unaffected. And their conclusions, which is really, really interesting, is that our landscape use has a major impact on climate change. So it's not that CO2 in this instance is the dominant cause, it's out the landscape use is the dominant change in rainfall loss. And it was put down to the small water cycle. But major things come out of the, the various papers that have been produced in this, and a lot of papers have been produced on it, that's why the Americans call it the bunny, the bunny fence climate project, is aspects that relate to, and something that we had no idea before, is even minor changes in vegetative height can have a significant impact on rainfall. So they have photographs which are worth seeing. You you can actually Google it and you can see photographs of cloud formation right on the fence line. And on one side, there's no clouds. On the other side, there is clouds. And the impact relates to not just um, the small water cycle, but also the increased turbulence caused by just the minor difference of two or three metres in height of landscape surface caused by going from a essentially monocultural agricultural system to a diverse Mallee scrubland, which is no more than three metres in height. So it's quite fascinating to see the impacts of landscape and landscape use on rainfall and what we can do about it. It's a um, very interesting, very interesting book that written by Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu talks about the fact that the Aboriginals in Australia were actually uh, cropping native grasses and producing bread products um, 17,000 years before the Egyptians, which were always thought to be the earliest makers of bread. And they actually had a bigger area of land that they cropped for seed for making this bread than we have under wheat and, and those sort of cereal crops today in Australia. And how did, why, why didn't that stuff the land up, though? It's very interesting that you phrase it like that. And certainly if you look at Professor Gamage's work also in this field, where he points out that the entire landscape of Australia was managed by the Aboriginal for a long period of time. So this management involves an innate understanding that has come back through trial and error 
on not so much tillage, but burning. So if you look at, if you burn grasses, they produce a type of char. That char is broken down by fungi over about five years. Char being a charged surface is able to hold nutrients and make it available for the plants to regrow. So what it is doing is providing in a low charge landscape every five years, it's like applying a boost of charge um, by firing the the grass to produce the char. Now, the only way to, to produce that char is to fire it um, in the evening when it's slightly dewy so it doesn't burn well. So it's all their practices when you look at them are actually designed to improve the soil for a period of time and to provide feed for their stock, if you like, the kangaroos and the like, and to control to make it easier for hunting. But the aspect of this cycle of how they burnt and when they burnt actually directly affects soil fertility. So it, it's quite fascinating to look at that rather than use tillage, they used fire and they promoted charge in the surface, which held organic matter and held nutrients. So yes, they did make a, char, a, a change in landscape and they probably did make a significant change in climate associated with that. The climate was drying, the climate was getting warmer at the time and there's no doubt that in the last... 10,000 years or so as man spread right around the world and that increased burning occurred, that we've become a a warmer, stable period than in the past. And if there's a recent paper just came out um, this year in Caternary magazine that looked at the impact of flu on the population in America, where over 60 million people were um, wiped out in the 14th and 15th century, which meant 90% of the population was gone and you had a massive recovery of vegetation. That caused the Little Ice Age. The European system that we brought here, and you can understand that the settlers coming here would bring the system that they were used to doing, but are you suggesting that that's really undone a lot of the what we've done here? And, and how has that compared with the traditional Aboriginal way of actually managing the lands? As Professor Flannery pointed out in the mid-1990s, that um, the Australian Aboriginal changed the landscape to suit themselves. And it took them a period of time, we don't know how long, and they then created equilibrium, which they managed the landscape accordingly because of the nature of our soil being very different and our landscape being very different. When the Europeans came out, invaded the country, if you like, but when they came out, they did not observe the practices undertaken or make an effort to understand. They bought the systems that they had. In fact, there was a whole policy of colonisation right around the world to create an English landscape wherever they went. The problem was, in Australia, you didn't have a soil base that could actually tolerate it. So effectively... They arrived to a magnificent country with fantastic organic matter, with nice fluffy soils. You read the accounts uh, time and time again from the explorers. They talk about this fantastic, verdant country. But the verdant country had been actively managed to be verdant. It had been managed to maintain the organic matter. being green, really. Absolutely. It it wasn't quite like Irish green, but nevertheless, it was um, definitely green with nice, spongy, soft soils um, with very little sediment in the rivers. The rivers are all clear. You don't get clear rivers now. So 
they had a situation where the landscape had been managed. Now, we came along, and it's fascinating that even by the 1880s, many valleys had filled by up to two metres with colluvial and erosion of soil coming down and infilling the valleys. So we disturbed the system and really started mining it very quickly. And we also introduced cloved-hooved animals, which compacted and eroded the soil as opposed to the marsupials. It's totally fascinating if you look back on the evolution of marsupial and placenta um, mammals is they both evolved out of um, uh, Guandana land at the same time. But in Australia, the marsupials survived over the placentals, whereas going up through um, South America and up into um, Europe and uh, through Africa, it was the other way. The placenta mammals survived. And the reason may well have to do with the type of soil that we had because both different streams of mammals were on all continents at once um, 60 million years ago. But Australia was very different. So it's not that our particular mammals are um, more primitive. They're more suited for Australia by the nature of not just the way um, kangaroos can hold babies, uh, hold their young in the womb, but by the nature of their feet as well, the damage they introduced to the landscape. So that meant we had a different path evolution. So we mucked that up when we brought in cloved hoof animals that compacted our soil, which depended on organic matter to maintain its fluffy nature, not its charge. Whereas in Europe, the charge and the organic matter work together. Um, so you can lose organic matter to a high degree, but the charge so what, When you say it. charge, you're talking about ionic charge. And is that what causes it to grab organic matter and hang onto it rather than let it leach out? Is that what you're suggesting? Yes, it's unbalanced charge across what's known as a clay mineral, and it holds it. So when you deal with fertile soil, it's fertile because of its charge. Australian soil becomes fertile only by except the areas are under basalt, which we have some lovely productive areas that are effectively under basalt weathered soils. Um, but the rest actually gets its charge more or less from the organic matter. The rest of our mineral charge is too low because it's too old and too destroyed. Mm. So you mentioned before that the Aboriginals really maintained their organic matter and their, if you like, their, stopped their erosion by use of fire. What we've done since 1970s is we've used glyphosate to do the same thing. The European system was you plough the ground, turns all the weeds over and they die and that's how you stop weeds. But then you end up with this bare soil. Now, we've now changed that practice and, and in fact, was so successful in stopping erosion that we're able to get rid of the Soil Conservation Service in New South Wales, effectively, because, you know, we were now leaving the stubble in the ground and we were now using glyphosate to actually kill off the weeds and then sowing straight into the stubble and the root matter and everything that was still there. What's been the effect of that, though, on this whole small rain cycle that we're talking about before? Has that been a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if you look at um, glycophosphate, I just want to put, put aside the whole debate on its toxicology for the moment and just concentrate on what it does to the soil and what it meant for practices. So you're absolutely right. It could have been a good thing. But because at the same time we thought, oh, well, we can increase our rotational system. We don't need legumes, for instance, in our crop rotation. We can just 
go for wheat canola wheat or something similar where we're doing grain on grain because we now have chemicals to do of which glycophosphate was the the symbol. So you add lots of fertilizer, particularly nitrogen, but also phosphate fertilizers to Australian soil. And because it depends on its charge by a pH variable charge, you are adding acid. You're also adding, by putting on uh, glyphosate, you're adding a situation where you are impacting the fungi. So when you impact the fungi, you drop the pH, which normally suits fungi a bit, but you drop the pH so that you get to the point where the the charge and the organic matter is no longer effective, the soil starts to break apart. You also increase the bacteria over the fungi. So when you increase the bacteria over the fungi, the fungi no longer make glues that hold soil together, but also... Isn't that a good thing because it'll let the water soak in more? No, it won't because you go to microaggregates, which doesn't allow water to soak in, it encourages water to run off. When you mineralize i.e. you just have bacteria, you convert your organic matter to CO2 and nitrogen, so it goes up to the air. You don't convert your litter into organic matter. The litter just stays on the top of the surface and volatilizes off, gets mineralized off. Volatilized is the wrong word. Gets mineralized off by essentially a bacterial-dominated system. So that's the outcome of glyphosate system where you're going from a situation where it becomes a symbol of what we can do with chemicals without understanding the whole system. So would we be better off going back to burning off the stubble rather than using chemicals to kill off the weeds? Now, let me be careful about this. Well, then Um, then you're conflicting with the carbon people. No, burning stubble was only done once every three to eight years in the arid system. This is by the Aboriginals. By the Aboriginals. And if you look at their burning cycle in Tasmania, was as little as once every 50 years. So burning cycle depended on the locality and the soil type and the animals that they were harvesting. So if you wanted to maintain kangaroos in certain areas or wallabies, there was a different firing cycle for different areas to introduce the green pick and to ensure the green pick stayed in that area. So by no means am I suggesting that firing should be an annual event or in the same area or part of our cropping system. There is an occasional need for it in our cropping system, even though I'm actually normally against it, because it is a, a controller of build-up of certain um, pathogens. So it is an occasional useful tool to use. But we used to burn every year. Uh, and you would recall, both of us grew up in regional Australia, and you would recall that every year when I grew up, we used to burn the wheat stubble. And I'm not advocating that at all. What I am advocating is a type of farming that we now use. It's still commercial, it still makes money, and lots of people practice it. Some people call it conservation agriculture or conservation cropping. Other people call it uh, regenerative agriculture, and some call it restoration agriculture. But it is based on building organic matter as opposed to straight carbon, building organic matter up in the soil and the full functions of organic matter being restored, that of a glue, that of encouraging infiltration, that of encouraging a nice fluffy soil, that of of being a growing medium for the living matter and most of all, that for promoting the small water cycle. 
So if we go back to our rabbit-proof fence in Western Australia, if we actually incorporated this style of farming on the arable side of the fence, if you like, the southwestern side of that fence, could you foresee the time when you wouldn't be able to see where that fence... At the moment you look at the photographs, you can see where the fence is by the clouds. I'm glad you see the photographs. It's really clear, isn't it? it? It's it's absolutely crystal clear that the, the clouds come up to that fence and they stop. So would we see that disappear if if we actually – in other words, is the situation redeemable by changing our farming practices in arable country and we could show that over on that fence? It's not just arable. It's also pastoral country too because there's a lot of degraded pastoral country with up to only 30, 30% vegetative cover. Look, in answer to your question, there are lots of farmers out there experimenting and leading the way over researchers, farmers who understand systems management and a whole of system assessment and are seeing what's working and are experimenting. So there are really leading cropping farmers in WA who are now working with tree breaks and seeing their impacts and are creating what some people call square clouds, where more rainfall seems to fall over their area than does in in adjoining farms. Yeah, you often get farmers saying, I missed out on that, the next door neighbour got it, but I didn't get the storms. And if that only occurs once or twice, sure, that's a weather pattern. But when it occurs consistently, that's a management pattern. Um, And you're seeing a, a difference in management where some farms get way more rainfall. And that rainfall relates to their management practices. And they're the farms that I've been going and visiting and talking to people and working out what they're doing that's different. And often it's about maintaining vegetative cover, increasing organic matter and having variations in height in the landscape. And even if you lose 20% of your land to some of these features, your production does not go down. In fact, your production goes up as does your profit in a lot of these farm cases I've gone and visited. So it seems to me that um, in terms of climate change, there's a global policy which we've been become part of, illustrated uh, as illustrated in the Paris Agreement, the Kyoto Agreement, the IPCC report, which seems to underlie a lot of policies in every country. They all, you either sign on or you sign off, you know. And yet from what you're saying, Australia and our, our politicians here, they should be saying, well, hang on, we're different. We don't necessarily, we're not going to benefit from that policy as much as perhaps America is where they have, you know, three times, four times the amount of organic matter in their soil. So we need to spend our dollars on actually working on this sort of an area rather than spending all of them on reducing carbon in the atmosphere. Would you Would you agree with that as an idea? Yes and no, Chris. Um, let me answer the question is, surprisingly, you can do both. By focusing on land, you can do both. And we've just recently come through an election and I would have to comment that whether you liked or disliked Abbott, he was one of the first to promote um, mitigation of carbon to land. Last month, I was in California talking to the person in charge of the cap and trade system for California carbon um, CO2 and they were totally fascinated and wanted to hear about how Australia mitigated carbon to land because California has a requirement to take half of the, the CO2 caused out of California to be stored or mitigated in California. And they don't know how to achieve that. And they've looked very closely at the Australian system where we've been developing it to 
through mitigation, through burning systems, through how we've handled leaving vegetation to agricultural practices, and most recently, the legislative system required to look at sequesting carbon to soil. Now, if you sequest carbon to soil, you must increase the small water cycle. So by actually trying to reduce it from the atmosphere, by taking it out, by sequestering to soil, you actually improve the small water cycle, which is the main thing that I focus on, is to improve productivity of farms, lifting water supply up and improving profit. Not so much getting CO2 out of the atmosphere for, for climate change objectives. But going back again to Paris 2015, the French were aware of what the Australians were doing at the time and looked very carefully and decided the answer was in the land. And they set up a very special subgroup sitting off Paris 2015 called Four Per Thousand. And Four Per Thousand is the percentage that you can apply of carbon to soil or land every year to meet the objectives by 2050. So it's possible to reduce all your CO2 from the atmosphere into um, land mitigation schemes and lift the small water cycle and have a huge impact on climate. But just necessarily removing CO2 alone without actually changing the small water cycle may not change climate. So we actually have to do both together. But So why don't we hear about that from our politicians here? I have no idea why the Liberal Party did not say we are doing really innovative work. I have no idea why it was not sold like that. Maybe they didn't realise themselves that the work we are doing innovative. I was surprised to get an appointment by just literally emailing the head guy for carbon, the cap and trade system in California, who really wanted to hear about how we manage the legislative process to actually mitigate to land. He had no problems understanding he could do it. And he had no problems that needed to be done. He was fascinated the fact that we'd gone through five or six years consultation, industry consultation, develop a program, had a system that could not be gamed, that had a way of measuring carbon, that had practices that could do it, that was all put through a legislative process. He was totally fascinated to know how that could be done so they could trade carbon in California knowing full well it was going to stay um, mitigated. And that's what was being worked through under the, the Liberal government for about five or six years prior to this, which has not been sort of publicised. The world is quite fascinated about that. They may not like the concept that, you know, we're still exporting coal and everything else, and that's up to debate, but the real issue is they are totally fascinated about our mitigation of CO2 to land. What I'm concerned about is not so much the reduction of CO2 from the atmosphere, but the fact that we, by putting, increasing the carbon in soil and, in, and increasing the vegetative cover, we actually return the small water cycle and we stop desertification. So are we going to be successful, I guess, is the ultimate question in avoiding this, um, uh, this prediction, if you like, uh, that was made in 1986 that effectively means that all of our arable lands and our agricultural areas will be largely unproductive by about 2040. Look, in 1986, we didn't actually know how to do it. We knew what was causing it. We didn't know how to do it. Now, because of leading farmers, experimenters, innovators who are trying things, not the scientists, not our scientists, it's actually the leading farmers who are getting out there and trying things, they're showing what, what can work and what can impact. It's thanks to Square Clouds 
that I actually have confidence. I'm excited about the future. I love going to these areas and understanding the science of what works and then trying to put it together as a systems management. So I'm really, really excited that, that we can achieve this. Whether we can achieve it without some incentive and whether we can achieve it without government getting behind it, certainly that won't happen. Whether we'll do it in the next 20 years, because in 20 years' time, the groundwater from Punjab will dry up and the Punjab will cease to be the breadbasket for India. So what time frame do we have? We don't have a, a huge time frame from landscape food production. I'm not talking about CO2 climate change here. I'm talking about landscape and food production. We don't have a lot of time. But I am excited about the opportunity that we have seen innovative farmers in America and in Australia. I haven't visited anywhere else, but I've visited those countries and it's exciting. And I think if that can be picked up by the greater farming community, the last 50 years of loss of small water cycle in Australia, I think in 30 years we can recover it. So I'm hugely optimistic. I'm totally stimulated by the young. I go around to conferences and I meet the young and they're excited by the opportunity they've got to help fix the world, and I love that. Philip Mulvey, you are a key agriminder for Australia. I, we can only wish you more strength to your elbow in your work. Thank you very much for being part of Agriminders today. Absolute pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Well, I'll leave it to you to consider what the data from the Bunny Fence Project has brought to the table. If we bet too many of our research dollars on the wrong horse with carbon reduction projects, why has this data been largely ignored by successive governments and research bodies? And should addressing this human-made issue be a key strategy to returning reliable rainfall to our farmlands? And if so, is this our plan B? Or indeed, should it be our plan A? You decide. I'm Chris Russell. Join me on the next episode of AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.